The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome to the dark word. I am, as always, your host, Philip Fricasi. And uh, on today's show, I have my good friend and the incredibly talented Ronald Malfi. Ronald is the award-winning author of several horror novels, including the best-selling Come With Me, published by Titan Books in 2021. He's the recipient of two independent publisher book awards, the Beverly Hills Book Award, the Vincent Price Horror Award, the Benjamin Franklin Award, and his novel Floating Staircase was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. He lives with his wife and daughters in Maryland, and when he's not writing, he is performing with the rock band Veer. Ron, I've always meant to ask you, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Is it Malfi or Malf- Malfi, or how is it pronounced? It's pronounced Malfi. Are, are you Italian? Yeah. <laughs> you should know better. <laughs> when people ask me about my name, I'm like, it's Fricasi, like lasagna, Fricasi. Yeah, it's Malfi. Uh, yeah. Malfi, it's Italian. There you go. Hey, man. So listen, thank you for being here. It's very exciting for me to have you. There's a lot we have to talk about and a very limited amount of time in which to do it. And again, this is a podcast for writers. I got a lot of writers who listen to this. And one of the things I'll always like to ask is I like to dig, make you dig back into your memory bank and think about your first publishing experience. How did you first break in? What and if um, for better, for worse, positive or negative, what was your uh, what were your experiences with that first publishing? Well, I mean, I guess there's we can go short story route or the first book route. I mean, my I I think the first short story was published in a a college magazine and I got like a a copy, you know, contributor copies for it. I thought that was cool. Just seeing it in print after after being a kid and writing this stuff, you know, either by hand or on an old typewriter all my life. You know, Mm -hmm. up until that point, it was awesome to see someone actually see it formatted in a in a book. And then I remember I was I was still in college and I won a. It was a it was a Dracula competition. It was like an internet, like the International Society of Dracula or something, hmm. and that exists. That's the thing. Um, they had a competition for like fiction and and poetry and nonfiction. So I wrote this this what I thought was kind of this cool Dracula story, sent it in, and then as sort of like a joke, I wrote this Dracula poem about. It was very meta. It was about a competition about that Dracula has that invites the winner to his house and eats him. <laughs> so it was kind of like this goofy poem, and the story. Uh, was not selected, but the poem won. <laughs> and oh, no, funny. It was my first paid gig. I got like a check and an, and an award sent to me. I'm like, oh, look at that. That's awesome. Did, now, and what about your first n- novel experience? Because I'm looking at your bi, your, bi- your biblio, excuse me. I'm seeing some stuff here that I've never seen. So it looks like in 2000, you published a book called The Space Between. And then you had a raw dog screaming press book called The Fall of Never. I think I always thought Shamrock Alley was your first novel, which was um, in 2009. But- what was that first novel sale like? How did that come down and, and 
and what was that like? And what, what did you take from that experience wise? Yeah. Um, you know, but by the time I was getting ready to graduate college, this has been like 1999. Um, I had written probably about six or so full length novel manuscripts and I was just, just an avid writer. I just want, I wanted to write, I wanted to be a writer and I was trying to put off getting a real job for as long as possible. So as I was getting ready to graduate, I said, you know what, let me take the best of these and shop it around. And at that point, that that was when you used to, you know, they had the writer's market book that came out every year and you'd go through it and tab all the, all the places you could submit to. And for, you know, for people who aren't familiar, that was like a, that was like the Bible. It was a big chunky paperback that came out annually with every publisher, editor, contact info. And that's, that's how you found the agents were in there. Yeah. All the agents, all the editor. It it was really a a great resource all in one spot. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you know, so what you do is you, you, you write your query letter, you send your three sample chapters in those with the, with the self-addressed stamp envelope inside and, (laughs) and you mail those out. So I just, I did that. I don't know how many I did like, 30 of them maybe. And I got, uh, I got a, a small publisher interested in the book and we signed a deal and it was, you know, as soon as I signed that contract, it was like, Oh, I, I was getting ready to put on my sports coat with the suede patches and smoke my pipe and lean, you know, now I'm a writer that look at me, I can sit by the fireplace and contemplate. Right. And, and, uh, and the reality of that kind of came, <laughs> came down on me hard throughout that year when I realized what it actually takes to have a book be successful. And, I mean, I, I don't think I made a dime off of that book and the publisher probably ripped me off and, you know, but it was a great learning experience and it really, what it did was kind of, I did, I won't even say attractive fan bases that, that certainly didn't happen, but it did allow me to, when I contacted other publishers like Raw Dog Screaming Press and, and other smaller in, indie presses, I could say, hey, I had this book published, you know, I could send you a copy and that helped me kind of get my foot on the next rung of the ladder uh, for the next book. So, it, so it, it was beneficial, even though the book uh, sucked and I'm happy to have it out of print right now, <laughs> but um, it, you know, it's a learning, it's a learning experience. Well, that's interesting. Cause I was, you know, I was having a conversation with some uh, a writer the other day and, um, and they were like, well, where should I, you know, where should I publish? I have all these short stories and I, and I want to do a collection one day and I want to have a novel one day. And I said, I said, where should I publish? And, and please tell me if you disagree with this. I, I said, you know, just publish anywhere, like just get published. And because if nothing else, you know, when you send that query letter to, to the publisher or to to an agent, you can say I was published three times and on this website that you've never heard of and on this anthology that you probably never heard of. But it shows that someone read your work, liked it and published it. And that I think that helps. Right. I mean, I agree with that to a point, uh, you know, clearly there are a lot of um I don't know if nefarious is, is, is a strong word, but, but, you know, unscrupulous publishers out there or, or people who parade as publish publishers. So I, I mean, look, there, that everything in this industry goes with a little bit of, you know, self-protection involved, right. uh, you know, so know who you're sending it to do a little bit of research, but, you know, certainly I, I, I wouldn't, the opposite is I wouldn't say I am only going to publish this collection with Penguin Random House and that's it. And I'm going to try for the next decade to get in that door. Um, I, I, I think that's a little myopic. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly see what's out there. See, look at, you know, the kind of stuff that you read. If that appeals to you, find out who's publishing it. Find out who the editors are over there. Who the Who's the agent who represents the people who are publishing the material that you like? You know, it's playing it safe, but it's kind of playing it smart, too. 
Yeah, there are a lot of, I think nefarious is, a, is an appropriate word. And I was talking to, um, I believe it was this conversation I was having with Tim Wagner and we were talking about publishing and he was saying how his first, his first story sale, he never got paid for. And it was in a pretty big anthology that like Stephen King was reprinted and Clyde Barker was, re- and he got, and he was never got paid for. It. And I, and we were kind of talking a little bit about the idea that like, yeah, there's some, there's some fly by night publishers out yeah. there. And I think what's interesting, there was like a wild west moment between, you know, traditional publishing, which was what, what I was doing in like the early 2000s, when you would, you'd go to a printer and the printer would make plates and the plates would be your cover and you'd get to buy 2,500 copies of your own book and store in a garage and then ship it to some warehouse in Pennsylvania, blah, blah, blah. It was all people, the kids today, they'll never understand how hard it was to publish. And then there was, and then there was print on demand, but there was print on demand. And then there was like that weird window when there was print on demand, but there wasn't necessarily those, um, you know, at least commonly there wasn't a Twitter, you know, verse there was. So my, my point is, I think now when publishers are doing something nefarious to use your word, they get called on it pretty quickly. Cause like you go on Twitter and like, you know, someone blows, someone says something like, Hey, this publisher screwed me over. You can't get away with it anymore. I, yeah. By the way, writers, if anyone's ever asking you to pay out of pocket to publish, <laughs> to publish a book of yours, don't, don't do it. And same with agents. You don't pay them up front. They get your commission. Yeah. Agents, agents take what, I guess, depending on your deal, if it's a literary agent, they take 10, 10% or 15% and film agents, same, yep. right? Let's talk about agents for a second. Cause we're already halfway here and I'm curious. And I, and I think this is a great thing to segue into. Then I want to talk about some other stuff. You and I have had conversations over the years. You've been sort of my, my, you know, shoulder to cry on in certain times. And I've had to learn over the last few years. Okay. Well, does your literary agent and then, and your literary agent that you get, your first agent may not be your last agent. That's a different conversation. And and then you can have a, a film agent and then you can have a lawyer and there's kind of different ways that you can have a manager. There's kind of different ways to piece it together. Everyone's relation, uh, everyone's um, situation is sort of unique, but what is your situation with your like representation? How do, how do you, how does your day-to-day business operate? So I've got a literary agent. I'm with the Donald Moss uh, literary agency and my agent is Cameron McClure. Um, and she's, uh, I hunted her down years ago cause she's also Robert McCammon's agent. I'm like, oh, that is a good company right there. So I'm with her for, for my books and uh, she's also got an assistant who does my foreign sales and audiobooks. So that's all kind of in-house with that agency. And then for film, uh, I'm with Paradigm, uh, my agent over there, uh, who's freaking awesome. Uh, he's not a lawyer, but he is better than a lawyer. This guy is, if you had a robot plugged into a wall to, to, to review stuff, it, it couldn't do a better job. So he handles all the book to film translations, any of the option uh, stuff that comes in. Uh, we, you know, a year or so ago, we went out and pitched an original concept that we wound up selling under option. Uh, he handles all of that. So uh, those are those are basically the two sides. And of course, each each agent's got their own assistants and stuff that help out with with other little parts of it. Yeah. And then if you have an agent, uh, you know, a lot of times you don't need legal on top of that. Like to your point, you're you know, so much of this stuff is is cookie cutter now and the agents know what to look for and they know what to you know, what to watch out for and what to cut out of contracts and stuff like that, because a, a lawyer will end up taking another five percent on top of whatever your agent takes. So and to and so since you mentioned because one of the things I wanted to get into, I'm jumping at, I'm jumping around a little bit, but that's okay. Let's talk about film for a second, because you had some, you had some success. You just kind of mentioned it selling your, one of your books. And I, what I want to, if you could kind of break it down for writers who have no idea how that process works, how does it go from like, I'm going to, you know, shop this book or story for film and TV adaption to like, 
No, no, Victor Laval just posted a photo of his director's chair on on set. Did you see that? that. So how do you go from, hey, this would make a good movie agent to, hey, look, I've got my name on a director's chair. (laughs) Answering some of that might be better for Victor. Uh, I don't have a name on a director's chair, but. Not yet. Yeah. But trust me, you don't want to see, uh, (laughs) you don't want to see what I could do behind the camera. (laughs) But um over, I guess, the, the COVID quarantine period, you know, those those weird two years or whatever it was, uh, everybody trapped at home. Um, I, you know, I wound up kind of buckling down and focusing. I wrote I wrote Come With Me during that that period, but I, I also focused a lot on the movie side of stuff and worked with my agent on a lot of projects. How that started with that, and, and I've had other film agents before and I've had other options before, mm-hmm. but these were much more... Um, like we were right on the cusp with a lot of stuff. So these were more um, pertinent, I guess, to, an- for, to answer the question. So it, how it started was uh, before uh, my film agent was my agent, uh, he contacted me on behalf of a client of his who was a writer um, who wanted to adapt Bone White for a TV series. Um, and he said, look, we could pay you, my writer can pay you outright for the option or if we sell it, we could pay you on that side. And I'm not, you know, I know how writers are. I'm not looking to squeeze a, a working writer for any money. So I said, look, he could, he could work on it. And if we get a bite from a studio, then we could, we could talk money. Um, and he went off and he wound up selling the option to uh, Fox a studio, Fox 21 for TV. And just as that happened, they were bought out by Disney. And, and then we wound up going over to Disney with the project. Ultimately, uh, it was then picked up by Amazon for an Amazon original TV series. It was the same producers who were doing uh, The Handmaid's Tale and the Fargo TV series. So some pretty big names. I was really excited. And the writer who was working on it uh, was Henry Chazon, who, who, did, who wrote the movie Antlers. I don't know if you've seen that. I did um, see it, yeah. Yeah, so so real the, the script was awesome. I was really excited about it, and then COVID hit, and everything kind of grinded to a halt. Bone White kind of hung in stasis. They reoptioned. They they once the year went by, they they reoptioned it again. So that was good financially, but you know you, you know how it is. You want to see these things get off the ground. So that as that was sitting there over that year, another writer came to me and picked up the option for Come With Me. And NBC Universal bought that option. So I had those two projects going. And then I wound up going back to Fox and Disney and pitched them an original concept that I came up with, not based on my book, where I would be the showrunner and I wrote a pilot script for. And uh, Fox and Disney optioned that as well. So I had like three right on the cusp TV shows about to go into pre-production. And then... All of them, like by the end of, I mean, it was fairly recently, a few months ago, everything just kind of all, all at once were like, nope, nope, no, nope, everybody's passed and they're all backlogged from COVID and they can't, they don't want to, what, what they were interested in two years ago, they don't want to do now. And I'm like, holy shit. So, <laughs> you know, I just watched those blocks tumble, but it was, it was a great experience, you know, um, you know how Hollywood is. I mean, they, 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 they don't have any problem sending checks out. So that's cool from a financial standpoint. But again, you want to, you know, you, you put so much into this stuff. You want to see, you, you want to see it on TV, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, for everyone listening, the, the idea is, so there's, okay, there's a couple different ways you can go. And it's, I find it fascinating the way you went wrong. Cause it's actually usually harder though. Yeah. I, I actually. Right. Yeah, because yeah, okay, so so there's there's different things. So if let's say you have a story, guys, and there's a um, someone comes to you, and they could be a writer, they could be a director, they could be a studio, they could be a producer, any you know, they could be any, they could be anybody who who thinks that they can make 
that your story somehow turn it into a TV show or a feature film. So there's an option, which is basically, we're going to give you some money. It's not a lot of money. And we're going to have the exclusive right to this property for 12 months, during which time we are going to either write a script or we're going to try and find a writer or we're going to try and attach us. And then we're going to try and attach a distributor like an Amazon or a Fox, at which point writer, then that studio would then option it. And then, and then at which point, if the, let's say it gets greenlit, then they actually purchase the story. So there's there's also what's called a shopping agreement. And so were any of these shopping agreements initially or were they all options from the, from the get-go? They were optioned from the get-go. Um, mm-hmm. The shopping, so I, I, it's hard to say what was going on with the two projects that other writers were working on. Right. You know, I know that Come With Me, the, the writer went straight to NBC and NBC picked it up. So and he had a he had TV shows on the air with them prior. So he had a contact there with Bone White. That seemed pretty quick, too. Uh, so I think it was a one, you know, they pitched it and they got it. And then, you know, once the option came through uh, from the studio, then you know, they hooked me in, not just, you know, by getting getting paid for the option. But I wound up I love this agent so much for I mean, he's hooking up all these deals for me. I said, Look, you're my new film agent. <laughs> he's like, oh, let's do it. Right, so I right. went up signing with him, and and we did. We had we had it, you know, over the past two years, like three projects optioned and in develop some form of development. So that was really cool, and it really it really opened my eye. Like you know, just to see how that process works and what's expected, and the meetings with. I mean, you're on these Skype calls with like 20 people who are all who've all got a say in what they want the show to be like, and you know that, and that's a whole that's a whole other podcast, you know, whole other show, I guess. But uh, you know, it was it's. Very interesting. Yeah, it's 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 interesting when you get to that point where it's like it really quickly to define it for a listener. So a shopping agreement is basically when somebody comes to you and they're like, look, we're not going to give you any money, but we, we're going to give you this thing called a shopping agreement, which can actually be pretty beneficial to a writer because instead of getting making the numbers up, instead of getting twenty five hundred dollars for a 12 month option, uh, you know, and then another twenty five hundred dollars if they renew the option or whatever it is, shopping agreement, you don't get any money, which sounds bad. but if that writer or producer, whoever it is, makes a deal with a studio like a Fox or a Universal, then you as the writer end up doing your option deal directly with that studio. And you can get a lot more money for the option at that point, in theory, than you could have, say, if this writer had given you, to your point, Ron, an out-of-pocket, a couple grand or 500 bucks. And I, and I guess technically the two writers who are working on this project, it was me essentially giving them a shopping agreement to then go and shop it because they didn't, I, I got paid from the studio. I didn't get paid right. you know, from them. So that's, I guess in theory, that is how that worked. But there's a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah. And like, even like if you take like Josh Mallerman for an example, where he's got his agent is also his business partner and his manager. So right. his manager doesn't take a fee, but he gets a producer credit. So it's, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, but you had a lot of success kind of very, in a very small window there with like, uh, obviously you've had a lot of options in the past, but to get to that point where like they're about, they are actually are about to green light the show that's when like, okay, that's when the big dollars give, you know, the purchase price is always significantly higher than the option price. So that, but you don't, they don't buy the story unless they put together a budget, which means they green light the project. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause you, to your point, you can be on zoom calls or Skypes with 20 people and you guys are, there's a script and there's probably a director and everyone's attached and, and yeah, but it, yeah, it's still not technically greenlit to the point where they need to actually buy the story. Yeah, and I, I think how the I think how the the pay the pay was leveled that layered out in those contract is it's considered a purchase once and, and, and you get the the payment for that purchase once the day of principal photography begins. Right. If I'm remembering it correctly, 
you know, because technically all the, the pre-production development should, if they're doing their job, should be done under that option, um, you know, and then when they buy it, they're kind of ready to go. That's kind of, gotcha. that's how I remember it being, being layered. Yeah, that makes sense because that way the studios, there's probably a series of switches that get flipped once principal photography starts. Right. But but as a writer, you're thinking, okay, well, look, if there's a cast, you know what I mean? And if they schedule it and if there's a director, and to your point, who could have foreseen COVID? Yeah. yeah that's, that's, a, that's a punch to the gut. Uh, and it's also... It's also a cautionary tale on the how fickle you know this stuff can be as far as like what's trending, what's hot, what people want now versus what they wanted. Like oh, yeah. I, you know, I wrote a screenplay with a, with another writer, who's a good friend. I think I've talked to you about it, and but it was like no, nobody wants that kind of story any right now. No, no one wants that kind of story anymore. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna burn the manuscript. Let's let's give it a couple of years and wait for it to cycle back around because these things do tend to cycle. Well, that's ex- everything cycles back around exactly. I mean, even right before, right before COVID on a smaller scale, I had uh, a filmmaker approach me who wanted to do an independent film on based on my book, The Night Parade, which is about a disease pandemic. Right. And uh, that was written in 2016. So he wanted to do this and he was he was in he was raising the money right when COVID hit. And all the financiers kind of said, oh, is this something somebody wants to watch now? And some argued yes, more than ever. And others said, no, not nobody wants to see this now. You know, so that project died, you know, so it's it's sort of like that was just a, just a lousy, just lousy timing. <laughs> and I tell you, it's, it's been interesting how prescient a lot of writers have been. I mean, there were, seemed like there were some pandemic books popping up. I know Paul Tremblay off the top of my head, Survivor Song, uh, your book. And I think I can't remember. There was another one that popped up there. And so and it was like, but everyone, all these writers were like, look, guys, I wrote this book three years ago. Like this was not a COVID book. I didn't write this during COVID, but it's, it's, I guess it's a somewhat a popular trope. So that's all super fascinating. And now because I, because I don't want to go over time, I want to talk to you about your publishing experience because you, you've had a lot of like very real, real world publishing experience. And what I mean by that is, I mean, you're probably the one writer who I can think of where you've had, you've worked with independent presses. You have worked with these um, deluxe limited deluxe presses, you know, like the, the guys who come out with the, with the signed books and, and the deluxe editions, like the cemetery dance and the earthling and the what have you. And delirium, I think is who you worked with. And you've also had, you know, moderate success with like pretty good publishers like Kensington and you were with millennium too. Is that right? I'm making, I'm going my memory. Um, um, Medallion press. Medallion. Yeah. yeah. And now, and now you're with Titan, which is a great press and a, and a, and a huge press. And then also you've done, which is really interesting to me, is you had some of your early stuff uh, with more indie presses, and then you made a deal with Open Road to reprint a lot of stuff. So what, first of all, what's the biggest difference in your mind between working with, say, and that doesn't have to be negative necessarily, but just a just difference between working with somebody, say, like a Titan and somebody like a Journal Stone or, or one of these indie presses, what to you is like the biggest difference? Uh, I mean, probably what you'd suspect, uh, the the bigger the publisher, the more visibility the books get. You have an easier time finding some of these, finding my Titan books on a bookstore shelf than maybe Journal Stone to a degree. Um, So you get the visibility out there. Uh, They've got a really strong network of promotion. Uh, You know, I've got two dedicated marketing folks for me to get my books out. Um, smaller presses just don't, they can't afford to do stuff like that. Uh, so, so the limitations that you would suspect a small press has, they, they have, you know, I think with me, particularly when I was younger, I was writing so voraciously. I was writing several books a year 
you know, this is back b- before I was a middle aged dude and with kids. Okay, so I had time <laughs> right. and I had energy and, and zeal. Right. You know, so I, I think almost to my detriment, I was writing so much that the prospect of finding an agent and holding out for a really great book deal bored me. You know, like I, I like I got all this stuff I wanted to get out there. So I found publishers early on in my career that were smaller who I could approach myself and, and they were putting out writers that I was familiar with and books that I liked. And I said, oh, this is a good this could be a good home for me. And I want I always wound up doing a few books with that, pu- that publisher and then realizing, oh, well, maybe I should maybe take a bigger step and, and go somewhere else. And, and I'd make that move. Um, and then when I signed with a, my book agent years ago, that took me to a whole other level of, of the publishers that we were contacting. Um, so, you know, a lot of those older books, they were with like, you know, I did five books with medallion press and medallion I thought was, they, they were such a fun, fantastic publisher. My sales were, were with them were just mediocre because of, of the limitations that a press like that has. But I mean, they were my first, you know, they were not POD. They were my first offset printed book. They were they were mm-hmm. printing bulk copies of these books and warehousing them, just like you said. And what I learned from that is they're much cheaper. It's a lot easier to sell a seven to ten dollar paperback than it is a twenty dollar paperback. Mm-hmm. So I learned, you know, so I wound up. I always kind of in my head said, okay, I can do. I will keep my career parallel, and I'll do my my mass market you know, offset printed New York publishing books for my main drive while also continuing to work in the small press arena uh, for other types of books, like not just the limited sign hardcovers of those other books, but I, I continue to work with Journalstone. They did summary prints of mine. They did uh, a short story collection of mine. And, uh, you know, most recently they did a, a novella that I wrote called Mr. Cables. I mean, those are things that just seem more suited for that type of publishing than a, a bigger house would. So I do keep my hands in both of those pools, really mostly for for the creative outlet that both of them afford me. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it, do you think it was a benefit to you that you were out there putting, just putting stuff out? Do you think ultimately that ended up paying off with some of that when you're like, like, for example, when you got your first agent, like, was it because you were like, look, if some, you know, if this guy wants to publish my book, let's publish the book versus like holding out for Random House or whatever. Do you like, what, like, do you feel that it worked out for you? I mean, I think it worked out. I mean, who, who's to say what's the better move? I mean, there maybe if I only wrote one manuscript and held out for a great deal, I would be I would be diff- in a different spot in my career, or maybe I would be nowhere. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I will say that by the time I approached agents, I think I, I sent query letters around the time I signed with my my agent. I had sent query letters to maybe twelve agents. Maybe two didn't get back to me, but like six of those twelve knew my work already. And mm-hmm. that helped. That was a huge help as opposed to earlier in my career when I tried the agent route. No one knew who I was. I had no, nothing really to my name and no one really cared. And if I got a response, it was a curt, hey, no thanks, kid. You know, so yeah, in that respect, it certainly helped. You know, I mean, you're bringing something to the table. You know, you're showing I, I don't just have this one book in me. I've got all this other stuff. Yeah. And also and also we've talked about this on, on, on the show in the past is. There's, there's, there's pros and cons to working with an independent publisher and versus like a big five. And one of the big cons, let's say you sell a book to a big five. Let's say you sell a book to Random House to stay with Random House. And then and then your next book is with William. You, you know, let's say William Morrow is considering your next book. 
William Morrow is not going to look at your track record of here's all the independent, here's all the great work you've done. Here's all the great independent, <laughs> independent publishers you've done. They're going to look at the sales for your last big five book. And if the sales aren't there, they're not yeah. going to pick it up. And it's kind of like being blacklisted a little bit, like in Hollywood, like it's really comes down to what, what, you know, what were the sales of your last book? And is that something that we're willing to take on versus I think with independent presses, they're much more apt to take on writers they like. Um, or they think they're doing great work because they're not going to sell 50,000 copies anyway. So there's pros and cons, you know, but with the big publishers, you get the distribution, you get the marketing. Uh, have you found that to be true? Has that ever come up with your deals? Like where people are like, you know, your agents are like, oh, they're, they're not happy because they're not, they're not interested because of a sales of a certain title that you've had. Has that come up? Not so much as blatant as that, but I had my suspicions that like, so when I went from medallion to, and I had like, I think le- a, a leisure book was wedged in there right before that whole thing imploded. And then I went over to Kensington, probably unjustly Kensington looked at my smaller press stuff and, and made an assessment of what I could sell based on that. And Which is very unfair in my- It is unfair. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised they did. And, and, and you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to say that this this is this is my opinion of what I was not told this right uh, but it was kind of my opinion of it and because of that I think it was you know some of these there are very few even if you're with a big publisher there are very few authors that that big publisher will get behind with the big rollout and the, and the promotion and the book tour and all that right most of their you know 90 percent of their guys are these mid-list kind of working stiff writers who, who put books out and you know they get them on the shelves and they've got their three-month cycle before they get returned and if one of them happens to hit the bestsellers list great but if not that's fine that's just that's fill in the shelf space you know so a lot of writers are get caught in that and you can make a living and, and do that even with a bigger publisher and something like when I went when it, with Kensington, it wasn't like Kensington was going to rocket me to the bestsellers list. It, they were, I was a, I was a working writer, you know, and, yeah. and that's cool. Uh, but again, you, I find myself continuously reframing what I expect to happen down the road every time I'm with a different publisher. But I will say, I mean, Kensington, they, they, most of these publishers have been, publishers were great to me and, and Kensington, I had a great time with them when I wrote, come with me. I had finished a three book deal with Kensington and was playing in this, in a rock band and wanted, and, and didn't want to re up for another three books. I was doing a book a year for like a decade and I was kind of burnt. And um, so I did not sign a new contract with Kensington right. after those three books wound up recording a record and stuff with my band and in that process wrote come with me just for myself kind of on spec and and figured maybe we'd take it back to kensington or somewhere else we'd shop it around see what we can get and that's how we wound up with with the deal with titan because uh it was just it was a good move for me to make for my my career to go with them for that deal interestingly i mean arguably it could be said that that was, you know, maybe if we're just basing it and I haven't done the, I haven't done the math on it, but it, it was a huge hit. Come with me was a, was a big hit. I mean, it did very well. It's doing very well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's 30. Sur- I mean, I just was in the first six months, I think it surpassed the sales of all my books. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's put me in a different arena um, and people, and I've seen so many people comment about that book where, oh, I've never heard of this writer before. You've got to read this book. And I'm like, right, you never heard, I, I got 17 books out. <laughs> you never, you never right. heard of Time to get that catalog reissued. Exactly. I mean, it was the same thing when I, when, when my book Snow came out with Leisure Books. And Leisure Books back in the day was the zenith of mass market horror paperbacks, right? 
so when that book came out, you know, I'd already had a bunch of other small press, indie press books or whatever, but that book, like people knew me for that book and I still get people bringing their, their leisure copies of snow to like book signings. Cause that's what they know me from, you know? Well, the Titan thing is interesting, you know, come with me because one, you wrote it for yourself, which I think is from a creative perspective, I think kind of fascinating. You weren't under the gun to your point. You weren't like, I need to do another book before the end of the year. And also because it was your first book with Titan. And so I guess there's an, there's an, there's an argument to be said, well, Titan, because you were with a bigger publisher, you sold more books. And you, you, I think you and I spoke previously about you saying Titan is great distribution. You know, they get the books on the bookshelves. Yeah. And, and then you wrote black mouth, which I just read and it's just amazing. And it's going to be a huge hit, everybody. It's going to be a huge hit. Um, so I always hate to say stuff like this, but it was definitely my favorite Malfi book. I just, I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Horror versus thriller. Cause like I creatively, do you approach them differently? Cause you, some of your books are definitely firmly footed in the horror genre. I would call come with me a thriller personally, but, um, bone white, maybe I think it has some horror elements. Do you worry about that? Do you think about it? Do you approach it differently? Is like, or is it just like, this is my, this is my next book. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I am conscious of that. Look, I, I love I love the fact that they walk this ambiguous line where it could be a thriller, could be horror. I mean, I have a very wide view of what constitutes horror, so pretty much anything could fit in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like I, I get the most satisfaction out of a story because it's the hardest thing to, to write a, a story that walks such a fine line that you're not sure really what it is after you're done reading it. You know, and, and other writers do it. I mean, Paul Tremblay uh, does that a lot in his fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that the, the the older I get and the more more I write, the more supernatural elements that come into my stories, the more secondary the characters become. And I don't like that. I like the characters to be front and center. So I am conscious of it, but I, it's also what appeals to me the most. So it's sort of my natural my natural default setting as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I, I don't find personally having read, mo- I think, most of your books – I don't find that your characters suffer when you do horror, but that's interesting that you have that perspective. Like Blackmouth, I thought the characters were really strong. It's it's, a, it's something for writers to think about, absolutely, because characters are what drive stories, right? Yeah. And that's the bottom line. And uh, yeah. everyone can have supernatural stuff thrown in here and there. And, you know, I get a lot of grief from writers, some re- readers who are like, oh my God, there's so much prose in your stories. And I'm like, yeah. well, there was so much setup before the actual horror happened. I'm like, yeah, because I... I believe in the characters, but, but it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting philosophy. Okay. Last question. And then we'll let you go. Any books that you have on your desk or on your shelves that are, you know, that, or that you studied when you were in school that are your go-to writing, writing books, book, a book that you would recommend for new writers? Man, you know what? I, I, I mean, Stephen King's on writing is a great book, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I generally, you know, I generally never really read books on writing. I always just read novels and they inspired me. And when I was younger, I, I basically plagiarized those stories that I liked and learned the craft that way. Uh, and as I got older, I just really found myself finding certain writers falling in love with the language and, and the process of telling a story and how each writer's thumbprint, you know, was in, in the prose that they wrote and just learned from that way. So I am constantly, every time I write a book, I've got a stack of other authors' novels sitting on my desk, and I just thumb through them for inspiration and, and just kind of, you know, read a sentence randomly and and, and just kind of be in that moment. Books that that embody whatever it is I'm kind of working on in the moment. I mean, that's that's really it. It's just it's just about reading other people's work and and having that inspire you. 
Yeah. Reading widely is uh, the number one thing I can recommend to any writer is like, man, read widely. And because writing is so such a subconscious exercise that all that stuff that you're absorbing in your subconscious will find itself through your voice back into your own work. So that's why I think it's so important to absorb as much as you can. Yeah, man, this is a, an incredible conversation. I've learned a lot and I'm sure people listening are going to be blown away by all the uh, behind the scenes uh, information and advice. So thank you so much for, for being here, Ron. I appreciate it. Philip, it was great, man. And also congratulations to you on, on your book deal, man. That's fantastic. I'm happy to hear it. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it was happy times over here. Believe me. And guys who are listening, thank you. Till next time on The Dark Word. Hey guys, it's Philip again, and I've got some great news. The Dark Word has been renewed for a second season. So please be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button on your platform of choice to be instantly notified when season two kicks off. I'll be dragging the catacombs for all new guests from the world of dark fiction with great writing and publishing advice you won't want to miss. Until then, thank you for listening, and don't be afraid of that scratching at your front door. It's just the return of the Dark Word. Dark Word, Dark Word, Dark Word. Original production. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.